Money FM 89.3, best of your money. Read with Michelle Martin on Your Money, only on Money FM 89.3. This is Money FM 89.3, and we are reading Can Singapore Survive by Kishore Mabubani. It was Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, our founding prime minister, who once said, Will Singapore be around in 100 years? I'm not so sure. America, China, Britain, Australia, these countries will be around in 100 years. But Singapore was never a nation until recently. And the trajectory that we take will depend on the choices made by a younger generation of Singaporeans. The newest edition of former diplomat, noted public intellectual Kishore Mabubani's book revisits that key question. It's titled, Can Singapore Survived? Now, the book was first published back in 2015. It's been updated. There are more essays and a new preface to enjoy. This latest edition will be on bookshelves from next Monday. Now, his books are known for their provocative titles and the way they incite discussion. He's a distinguished fellow at the Asia Research Institute, and it's a real pleasure and privilege to have him join us live today to take some take us through some of the ideas in his book Can Singapore Survive? Good morning, Professor Mabubani. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Great pleasure. Now, over the past 20 years, Professor, Singapore, which has prided itself on being an open nation, has had to learn to live with closed borders. And we are in the process of slowly reopening them now, even though the Omicron variant is throwing a bit of a wrench in those reopening plans. Now, one of the biggest sectors to be hit has no doubt been aviation. Do you think Singapore will be able to reclaim its position as one of the world's top aviation hubs? Well, I think it's important to emphasize that we close some borders, but not all borders. And as you know, uh, let's say, let's take on the shipping front. Uh, we actually, the role of Singapore as a shipping hub became even more important uh, in the COVID-19 period. And we became, as you know, we were called a catch-up port. Uh, because uh, ports around the world couldn't cope as a result of COVID-19. So what was, what was significant about Singapore is that we didn't shut everything down. We had to close, obviously, uh, the airport because people were coming in with the virus and that was a sensible and reasonable decision to make. But at the same time, for example, we also ensured that sailors could fly in and join ships. Mm. So that's an example of how we were, we were careful and we were uh, pragmatic. I have, I have absolutely no doubt that when the, when the world's borders, especially to aviation, open up, Singapore will very quickly uh, resume its place uh, as an aviation hub because we still have the tremendous physical and uh, also I would call a human infrastructure uh, to manage uh, one of the world's best airports. So I think that all that hasn't gone away. So I expect a major rebound uh, after COVID-19 finally disappears. Across the globe, Professor, policymakers and analysts are closely watching Singapore's new strategy to living with COVID-19. What impact do you think this new variant is going to have on our reopening? Uh, I think nobody knows as of now, uh, how bad Omicron will be. And already, by the way, there are two schools of thought on Omicron. Eh? Mm-hmm. Uh, 
uh, one school of thought is uh, very negative and saying, hey, this virus has got all kinds of new features. So all the vaccines that we have taken, for example, I've taken three Pfizer shots, may not protect me from Omicron. Okay, that's one school of thought and therefore it's dangerous and therefore we all have to shut down again. But then there's another school of thought that suggests that so far the symptoms of people who've been affected by Omicron have been very mild. And they're not, they're, I haven't heard of many cases of people dying uh, from Omicron. So I think we have to really wait and see. But the big lesson is from here is uh, about Omicron. The big lesson that the virus is trying to send the world is a very simple message that all 7.8 billion of us are now in the same boat. Countries have become cabins on the same boat. And so there's no point protecting your cabin if you don't protect the global boat as a whole. So I think the case for global cooperation has become much, much stronger uh, as a result of COVID-19. I think that's the big message. And what would your report card be for ASEAN in terms of how we've contributed to you know, ensuring that everybody on this boat uh, is moving forward or able to move forward, at least with vaccinations? Well, I, I as you know, I tend to be very bullish uh, uh, on ASEAN. And clearly, in the initial phase, uh, many ASEAN countries face serious challenges. I mean, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore too, as you know, uh, Thailand. Uh, but I think you, you're beginning to see uh, gradually that the ASEAN countries are opening up and, and, and adjusting and adapting uh, to this new uh, reality. So I am actually uh, reasonably confident that the ASEAN region will be among the first few regions to bound back, bounce back from uh, COVID-19. And it helps that both the United States and China are now courting ASEAN. And I discussed this in the new edition of my book, uh, Can Singapore Survive? And because they're courting ASEAN, they'll also be supplying more vaccines to ASEAN. So the more vaccines uh, ASEANs get, the more highly vaccinated we are, the more likely we are to bounce back faster uh, than other regions in the world. So overall, yes, I'm bullish on ASEAN. Speaking of China, what do you think of how um, other countries in the region have approached the pandemic? I mean, if we focus on China, Bloomberg ran a headline just yesterday that said China's basking in COVID vindication as Omicron closes borders. Uh, what do you think? Well, again, I would say there are two schools of thought now <laughs> on how to manage uh, COVID-19. And I would call it the Chinese school and the Western school. Mm. The Chinese school still believes that the best way to deal with the virus is to close your border. So, I mean, so for example, uh, uh, the, uh, a Chinese edition of my book, Has China Won, has just come out uh, in October in China, and I was supposed to go to China to launch it, but I cannot go <laughs> because the borders are closed. Right. And, uh, and, but the Western approach is to say, hey, we cannot keep our borders closed forever. And if we vaccinate our population, we live with it uh, as an endemic condition. And that's, as you know, is the approach that Singapore has taken, you know. So I think every country has got to look at its circumstances and decide what works best for its country. 
And I think it's Singapore is wise to treat it as an endemic issue as long as the a very high percentage of the population is vaccinated. And then we can proceed to the uh, endemic strategy, the Western strategy. But as you know, uh, I'm about to fly to Europe on Monday. Mm -hmm. And I, as of today is uh, Thursday, I still do not know whether I'll be able to fly. <laughs> really? <laughs> on Monday, will the borders be open or will the borders be closed? I don't know. <laughs> okay, but you're still holding on to those plans, the eternal optimist, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah. Haven't altered your plans. Uh, but speaking of China, I wanted to ask, uh, you, you've written many books, including um, Has China Won? And given China's zero COVID policy, how do you think that's impacted China's place in terms of where it stands in the global world order? Well, there's no question that China's standing in the world overall has been going up. I mean, people recognize and acknowledge that the Chinese government's management of COVID-19 has been one of the most competent. But having said that, let me also acknowledge that China's standing in the West has gone down. Mm -hmm. uh, because as partly as a result of this US-China geopolitical contest, as part of the contest, of course, the United States will, will try to give a very negative portrayal of China, it has hinted that the virus was leaked deliberately from a lab, even though there's no evidence, but people believe that those kinds of stories. So while China's standing in the West has, has clearly not improved, uh, the West at the end of the day represents 12% of the world's population. 88% uh, live outside the West. And among the 88% who live outside the West, I think there is, uh, uh, whether you like China or dislike China, there is a uh, respect for the fact that China has handled this uh, COVID-19 issue uh, very competently. And the Chinese economy is one of the first few economies to rebound very, very strongly uh, from COVID-19. In fact, China's exports uh, haven't gone down, they have gone up uh, after COVID-19. So there is a, clearly a lot of competent management uh, in China and that's been recognized by many countries uh, uh, in the world. But of course, if, if you read the Anglo-Saxon media, mm -hmm. I guarantee you, you'll only get the negative stories on China and not a balanced story on China. Earlier this year, Professor, you wrote a column which is featured in this book uh, entitled Singapore in a World of Anxiety. And that headline rings particularly true today as we consider Omicron and inflationary pressures as well at home and abroad. And you write that though while the pressures are real at times like this, you like to step back and count our blessings. And that sounds like nice advice. We can all use a moment to do that, maybe in our personal lives or even collectively. So tell us from your perspective, what should we be thankful for? Well, I mean, if you, you know, if you, if you ask very intelligent, thoughtful people around the world, you know, now, now that we have seen what it is like to survive a major crisis like COVID-19, which country would you have wished to have lived in now that you have all the data? And statistically speaking, your chances of dying from COVID-19 would probably be the lowest if you lived in Singapore. Mm. 
I mean, I'm shocked that many Singaporeans don't see this. You know, frankly, uh, you take advanced countries like United States and United Kingdom, the number of deaths, uh, you know, per million in the thousands, you know, and Singapore is a tiny figure. So clearly, uh, we have done a much better job than any other country in saving lives from COVID-19. And that's a result, obviously, of years and years of investment uh, in a strong uh, public sector, years and years of investment in very strong and exceptional health sector, medical sector. And so that's why we, we are really blessed, you know. And, and frankly, even our economy, if you look at it objectively, uh, while we have taken a hit, we also had the resources to take care of our people. So, you know, in terms of people falling into extreme poverty in Singapore, there are all kinds of safety nets that came into play. So objectively speaking, if you want to make decisions on the basis of data, mm-hmm. then clearly Singapore is one of the most blessed countries in the world uh, in terms of its ability to manage uh, COVID-19. You also write in your first chapter in this book about Singapore's management of COVID. You say you point to no dramatic surges of unemployment, wage support measures, death rates, as you mentioned, per millionth of the population and Singapore having one of the lowest rates in the world. And yet you write, having lived through the entire COVID-19 experience with my fellow Singaporeans, I can personally confirm that Singapore hasn't been a happy place during COVID-19. So why do you think Singaporeans have been unhappy despite our relatively painless experience? And do you think this is something for policymakers to to manage and take into account? Well, you know, actually, I, I give the answer in a column that is about to be published in the Singapore Straits Times uh, uh, sometime quite soon this mm-hmm. month. And I point out that Singapore is a very unusual city. Most cities in the world have their feet planted either in the west or in the east. Singapore is the only truly global city which has one foot in the West and one foot in the East. And unfortunately, virtually all the major Western cities are still suffering from a sense of doom and gloom for various reasons, okay? In the United States, as you know, it's not a happy society. It's still highly polarized, highly divided, and there's a danger that Trump may come back as the next president again in 2024, if you can imagine that, how it feels. Mm -hmm. And similarly, in in the case of Europe, there's a lot of unhappiness about the way that COVID-19 was managed, issues over migrants and so on and so forth. So what happens is that because Singapore has one foot in the West, we inherit some of the pessimism from the West. But of course, in the other foot, we get the optimism from the East. And so if you look at surveys around the world, and Mm -hmm. I document that in my article, Uh, The most optimistic young people in the world are today in China, India, Indonesia, and in Southeast Asia. They believe their future will be better than tomorrow. So Singapore is sort of caught halfway between the uh, pessimism of the West and the optimism of the East. And therefore, the Singaporeans tend to be very schizophrenic. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we we have to understand that this is part of our condition. Mm -hmm. But I also hope, I mean, my goal with the book, Can Singapore Survive?, is also to cheer up Singaporeans. Right. And to say, come on, be be objective and rational in in looking at uh, where you stand. Mm -hmm. And objectively speaking... 
today, if you are born and brought up a Singaporean, you will probably have a much better life than probably 99% of the planet. So accept the, the reality that you have some incredible blessings when you are born a Singaporean today. Do you think some of the structural reasons for Singapore's um, exceptional success of the past, though, uh, will objectively have to change? I mean, I think some of us remember S. Rajaratnam and how he lifted our spirits about prospects for the future when Singapore was being expelled from Malaysia. And you know, looking at the unknowns that we're dealing with, what do you say to Singaporeans who are anxious about the prospects of our little red dot's future? I mean, for a long time, commentators said size doesn't matter because of globalization. What do you say to Singaporeans who are down, who are anxious about our future prospects? You know, it's, it is perhaps natural for any small state uh, to be anxious. And to some extent, a certain degree of paranoia uh, is not necessarily bad for Singapore because it makes us vigilant and look out for new challenges that may come, like COVID-19, for example. But at the same time, if we objectively assess our situation, you know, when I first joined the Foreign Ministry of Singapore in 1971, and I had the great pleasure of working for Mr. Rajaratnam, whom I think is one of the greatest leaders I've ever worked with, you know. He had a remarkable mind, and he was a wonderful human being, warm, generous in, in every sense. And at that time, there's no question that Singapore and Singaporeans felt a deep sense of vulnerability vis-a-vis -vis our neighbours, vis-a-vis Malaysia, because we just had our separation in 1965, vis-a-vis -vis Indonesia, because we just had a confrontasi until 67, 68. So clearly, Singapore had a deep sense of vulnerability. Today, I would say that if you look at how strong Singapore is, how strong our armed forces are and how good our relations are with Malaysia and Indonesia, there isn't the same sense of vulnerability that we used to feel uh, in the 60s and 70s vis-a-vis uh, -vis our, our neighbourhood. So clearly we have become a stronger and more secure nation uh, than we used to be. So I think we should also appreciate what we have and frankly, I, I would say to Singaporeans that you should also understand that Southeast Asia used to be regarded as the Balkans of Asia in the 60s and 70s as a dangerous and hopeless place. But this dangerous and hopeless place has now become one of the most promising regions of planet Earth. And let me give you one piece of data that most Singaporeans are not aware of. In the year 2000, Japan's economy was eight times the size of ASEAN's economy, eight times. Today, uh, Japan's economy is only 1.5 times larger. And by 2030, ASEAN's economy will be bigger than Japan's. Look at that. That's an amazing economic growth in our region. And Singaporeans should look around and see how we can take full advantage of this economic growth because we are now in one of the most promising regions uh, of planet Earth. And therefore, don't, don't fall into the traditional Singapore habit of seeing the glass half empty, look at it as a glass half full. Well, speaking about economic growth, we are Singapore's only business radio station, so I need to touch on one of the fastest growing areas of finance. Professor, looking ahead, what do you think of Singapore's ambitions to become a global cryptocurrency hub? I mean, how crucial is this to Singapore's development as a wealth hub, in your opinion? 
Uh, I think I would make a big distinction between Singapore as a cryptocurrency hub and Singapore as a wealth hub. I would say with cryptocurrencies, be very, very careful. It is still a very new field. And I actually was listening to a Nobel Prize winner, uh, his name is Richard Taylor, on a podcast recently warning that the trouble with cryptocurrencies is that today a Bitcoin can be worth 50, 60,000, tomorrow it can be worth 20,000. Mm-hmm. So do you want to be paid in Bitcoin or not? So, <laughs> so you've got to be careful with it. But Singapore as a wealth hub certainly is succeeding very, very well. And I would say the Monetary Authority of Singapore uh, has done a brilliant job, you know, uh, of attracting some of the biggest wealth management uh, firms to come and uh, be based in Singapore. And you need a whole ecosystem. You need the rule of law. You need a strong judiciary. You need a sense of physical security. You need to have an enabling environment. So I think in those areas, Singapore is a wealth management hub. Uh, certainly is doing very, very well. Uh, but on cryptocurrency, I think it's good that we are, I would say, as MAS may say, you create what they call a sandbox <laughs> to see whether you can play with cryptocurrencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, be careful uh, even as you progress along with it. I think one of the reasons your books are, are so loved, Professor, is that they're, they're invitations to really meditate on many key questions that you bring up and frame so interestingly. And um, in this book, you talk about some of the key choices that will determine Singapore's ability to survive. And for readers who, who are interested, what do you think are some of the key choices in terms of leadership choices that will define Singapore's path towards the future? Uh, well, I think... The important thing for uh, Singapore to understand is that we are now really blessed to live in a region with tremendous opportunities, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, the, the three major growth areas of the world uh, will be the new CIA. CIA is not Central <laughs> Intelligence Agency. CIA is China, India, ASEAN. And the only city, frankly only city in the world that is well plugged into China, well plugged into India, and well plugged into ASEAN is Singapore. So the new CIA creates a tremendous opportunities for, for, for Singapore. And we should be asking ourselves, how do we take advantage of it? So for example, in our education system, you mentioned leadership choices. It's very important that our education system teach our young people a lot more, say, about the ASEAN region, a lot more about China, and a lot more about India. Whereas when I grew up in school, (laughs) I I knew all about England and the coal mines there and almost nothing about Southeast Asia. Right. (laughs) So that, that, uh, I think, but our education system has certainly evolved. But I think we need to make it very clear from a very young age to describe ASEAN in very positive terms to young Singaporeans. So they grow up, in a sense, with a much more positive attitude to our region rather than the negative attitudes that many Singaporeans have. 
His book is titled Can Singapore Survive? And, you know, it lays out different scenarios so there's space to consider whether your your answer is yes, no, or maybe. He's a distinguished fellow at the Asia Research Institute, author of several books, including Has China Won? But we've been reading his latest, which will hit our bookshelves Monday. It's titled Can Singapore Survive? Kishore Mabubani, such a privilege speaking with you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.